morning. I'll ask you to join me once again in turning in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, uh, to the prologue of this Gospel, John chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. I hope that the work that we have done thus far has us in a good place to be understanding what it is John's doing as he's walking us through his gospel. Uh, last week, we entered we, what we call the first of two doors that John is going to be opening in this prologue. Uh, last week, we opened the door that we called uh, Jesus as the Word of God incarnate. And so we looked at a number of things in these first 18 verses to see uh, what the picture is that he is presenting to us of our Lord uh, as the Word of God incarnate. This morning, we open the second of those two doors, uh, the door of Jesus as the light of the world. If you've been looking this week at this passage or looking at John at all, and you remember what we're about to read here, you know that this picture of Jesus as light uh, not only is going to come throughout this prologue, but it comes up over and over again in the gospel as a whole, doesn't it? And we certainly have a lot to hear from John on this subject. And it can be difficult. It can be difficult because some of the statements that he makes are not just immediately clear to us in terms of what it is that he's, that he's getting at. And so I want us to go slow and steady this morning and think about what John is saying to us here about our Lord as he speaks and writes about the Word of God as the light of the world. Namely, we're going to do this in three steps, if you're taking notes. So I want us first to understand or to consider what is being said about the origin and definition of this light as he's describing it. That's the first thing we'll do, origin and definition of the light, according to John. The second thing we'll do is to notice what the effect of the darkness is upon this light, according to him. So origin and definition of the light, the effect of the darkness upon the light. And then third, we'll look at the mission of the light that is coming into the world, as John describes this mission. And we'll be spending more and more time on each of those points as we go. So we'll spend a lot more time on uh, the mission of the light than we will on the origin and definition. These are the three steps that we'll be taking this morning. Can we begin, as we did last week, by just reading the first 18 verses aloud? I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. And if you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. <coughs> Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, 
was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. It is important, I think, to, to take note at the beginning here that what we're seeing in terms of John's prologue for this gospel story, what we're seeing this morning is only uh, roughly half of what he has presented. If you weren't with us last week uh, and you're planning to go through this, I would advise that you go onto our website and listen to the first, listen to what we, what we saw last week about Jesus as uh, the Son of God incarnate. The two pictures are related, they're connected, and it's important to have them both. And incidentally, we'll be finishing this prologue next week as well, so there will be more to be said. Uh, let's look first at uh, the light that we're seeing here uh, in terms of the origin and definition. What is John saying to us? What is he having us to understand as he says, in him was life, and the life, or that life, was the light of men. Before we even think about what this light is, we can consider where it came from. And what we find here is that it came from the life that is in the Word of God. It came from the second person of the triune God who will take on flesh and whose name will be Jesus. In fact, Jesus will go so far as to equate himself with this light later in the gospel, won't he? He'll say in John chapter 8, I am the light of the world. And one reason that it can be hard to discern, it's not, it's not hard to see here this origin that he's saying the, the light came from the life that is in Jesus. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. But in terms of the definition, what are we to understand by his use of this word light, this metaphor of light? It can be a bit hard to discern because of the lack of detail that he gives us here in these sentences. And because of the fact that the metaphor for light can be used to refer to more than one thing in Scripture, can't it? You have 1 John, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And there it seems clearly to be speaking primarily of something of a moral purity, the light as moral purity and perfection. And we would know that because he immediately talks there about walking in darkness and not practicing the truth. Context makes that clear. But here in, first, in, in John chapter 1, Gospel of John chapter 1, this is a light that he says, verse 4, is the light of men. 
and in a way that seems pervasive. And verse 9 confirms that. Verse 9, you see there, this is a light that gives light to everyone. So what's being said here regarding this light? And this is why I would say here that the, the light that's being held out to us is to be thought of in terms of light of revelation. It is light of a certain knowledge. By virtue of the life that is in Jesus Christ, there is in men an inescapable light of capacity and understanding concerning the existence of God. John Calvin is helpful here. He explains the ways in which this light is related. It's not the same as, but it's related to what we think of as human reason and faculty when John says that the life was the light of men. Calvin says this, he says, they, mankind, they were not created like the beasts, but having been endued with reason, they had obtained a higher rank. As it is not in vain that God imparts his light to their minds, it follows that the purpose for which they were created was that they might acknowledge him who is the author of so excellent a blessing. So maybe you see what I mean when I say that this light is related to, uh, I'm just using the word human reason. Uh, it's not that it's simply talking about human reason per se. It's talking about the fact that we are uniquely created, as this light, as this life is the light of men, we are uniquely created with the capacity to know God, to acknowledge God, and thus to worship God. One of the things that I hope you take out of what I just read from Calvin is the very clear point that if this is how we have been made, if this is the purpose for which we have been created as we've been created, with that comes responsibility, doesn't it? With that comes obligation. We've been made to know God, to acknowledge him, to worship him. And there's real obligation that comes with that intention on God's part. What we're seeing here then is that Jesus, the eternal son, is the understanding of, the comprehension of, the revelation of God. To know God this is life. That's life. To know God. Possession of that light is what lights our path. And this is exactly what Jesus will say at the end of this gospel in his high priestly prayer in John 17. Do you remember what he prays to his father? Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh. Here we go to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. We see it there, don't we? This life has this relation to a kind of knowledge, doesn't it? Because to know God is to have life, and intimate knowledge entails a relationship. 
There is no life disconnected from relationship with the Creator. In fact, that's what this whole picture demonstrates in John 1, isn't it? Because where there is no light, what is there? There is nothing but darkness. So we've seen a bit here then about the origin of the light and especially, importantly, the definition of the light as John is speaking of it here. We can bring that definition, our understanding of what John is saying to us here, into verse 5 as we look at the effect of darkness upon the light. Verse 5 says this, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. When darkness comes, that is to say, when his creation searches out ways to hide from the light, and when sin enters the picture and darkens the minds of sinners, that darkness, get this, has in fact no effect whatsoever on the light itself. The light shines in the darkness. The source of that light is unaffected by sin and darkness. And the existence and presence of the light, as it's been described to us in verse 4, remains. The darkness does not overcome it. I've learned a bit uh, at, at times from different things I've read or, or watched. I learned a little bit about, I forget how old I was when I first saw this, but I learned a little bit about, I guess you could say, fairy tale folklore. When I watched the movie Hook with Robin Williams, I didn't know before then that uh, as people stop believing in fairies, as they lose that, I guess you could say, that sort of relationship that exists by virtue of knowledge of <laughs> fairies, it kills fairies. It's what it does to them. I didn't realize that. As people stop believing in Santa Claus, evidently his ability to do magical things diminishes. And I know that because I've seen in the movies where Santa has to put an engine on his sleigh because belief in Santa Claus has reached an all-time low and so the magic is hindered, so he has to fire up his engine. There's this relationship between these things. Well, the darkness that John presents here, which we'll talk about more momentarily, it has no effect on the source of light itself and on the existence of this light. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, let me ask you, what does that mean for those who are living in darkness? This would mean that those who are living in darkness are having to choose that darkness and use effort to hide themselves from the light, doesn't it? The light's not gone out. As the life that comes from God, even in our creation itself, produces a knowledge of and a capacity to comprehend the presence of God, we choose the darkness in real ways that we must continue to engage in. We have to continue to choose the darkness because despite our best efforts, the light continues to shine. I've already brought Calvin into this. I'll go to him one more time this morning. Listen to what he says. The light, which was originally bestowed on men, must not be estimated by their present condition because in this corrupted and degenerate nature, 
light has been turned into darkness. And yet, he affirms that the light of understanding is not wholly extinguished. For amidst the thick darkness of the human mind, some remaining sparks of that brightness still shine. If you think about it, it really is pretty amazing. By the fall, we in our darkness and the futility of our minds have lost fellowship with God. Isn't that what sin has done? Broken fellowship, broken that relationship. We have lost love for God to the extent that the Bible says that apart from his work, none of us seek him or fear him. And yet the very capacity that we require even to be able to have such thoughts, we owe to the creation life that comes from Jesus. Even our very continued existence itself comes from him, according to Hebrews 1.3. He, the Son, upholds the universe by the word of his power. Have you thought lately about the extent of holy restraint that is on display on the part of the Lord Jesus Christ even now? It was true every moment of our lives before we were born again. It's true of every unbeliever, every moment of the day. They use the very faculties given to them by this light to hate him. The only reason they are not in hell this very moment is because of the very one that they curse. That's some restraint that the gracious Lord Jesus is displaying. Now, no matter how dark the darkness, what we're seeing here is that the light continues to shine. What in Scripture comes to your mind when you hear that? What does that confirm in your mind? The first place that my mind goes is Romans chapter 1. This makes Romans 1 abundantly clear, doesn't it? Unrighteous humanity is engaged in an active suppression of God's truth because, Romans 1.19, quote, because that which is known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. What does that mean? How can, how can such a statement be said about every human being that has ever been born, no matter where or when? How could that be? Printing press isn't everywhere and every time. How could it be that God has shown it to them all? It's because he has shown it to them in the very way in which they have been created. He has given them light to know that he is and that he is to be obeyed and that he is powerful and he is to be worshipped. And men hide from the light because they love the darkness, lest the darkness expose their evil deeds. So let's summarize what we've seen so far. Jesus Christ is life. In him Knowledge of God is found. Revelation of God is found. And as that comes forth into the world of men, it is the light source that shines. Apart from his light, there is only darkness. In verse 9, light, that light gives light to everyone. It is a light of revelation, which leads to salvation Yet it does not give light to everyone in the way he's describing here, salvifically, does it? 
We know that because men who love darkness are able to flee and hide from that light. Salvation does not come simply from verse 9, the light shining upon everyone. Revelation comes to all from this light. As D.A. Carson says, it shines on every man dividing the race. Those who hate the light respond as the world does. They flee lest their deeds should be exposed. Now all of that then continues to prepare us and to lead us into the third element we need to see that we'll spend most of our time on here, and that is the mission of the light. What is John telling us about the reason this light has come? What is the mission? We could answer that in a few ways. We could simply say, given the definition that we've seen of light, we could say its mission is to bring the knowledge of God. That would be true. But we probably could get more specific because of the context. We're in the context of a darkened world of sin, aren't we? So this becomes a rescue mission. That's the mission, that the light coming as he's going to be described here as, uh, that's the mission. It's a rescue mission. Coming into the world. This is as good a place as any to say, and this will be helpful for us, I think, going through the book of the Gospel of John. When you hear the word world in John, you don't need to struggle with any positive emotions. World is not a positive idea in the Gospel of John. One commentator is very helpful on this. He says about the word world, well, I'll tell you, this is Carson here again. He says, close inspection shows that although a handful of passages preserve a neutral emphasis, so use the word world not in a positive or negative way, a handful of passages preserve a neutral emphasis, the vast majority are decidedly negative. There are no unambiguously positive occurrences. The world, or frequently this world, is not the universe, but the created order in rebellion against its maker. That's what world is in the Gospel of John. And he gives a good example of this. Uh, John 3.16, right? God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. Positive, negative, neutral. He says, therefore, when John tells us that God loves the world, far from being an endorsement of the world, It is a testimony to the character of God. God's love is to be admired not because the world is so big, but because the world is so bad. The world, in John's usage, comprises no believers at all. Those who come to faith are no longer of this world. They have been chosen out of this world. John 15, 19. It's not the case every time the word world appears in all of Scripture, but what he's doing is helping us to understand what John is meaning when he uses this word. It's helpful to us. So the light coming into the world, this is a rescue mission. You could say the mission of the light is to rescue those whom the Father has given to him. And we see that rescue mission in our text this morning in two places. First, in verses 6 to 8, in the sending of John the Baptist. Look at verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. Now just notice first, this witness was sent from God to bear witness so that all might believe through his witness. 
Why did God want people to believe? Because by believing, that is to say, by knowledge that is believed to be true and is then trusted upon with a lie, by believing comes life. This is what we've already seen. Life is to know God, to have relationship, meaningful relationship with him. Jesus will say, I came so that my sheep may have life and have it abundantly. And what do you know? He says that in the Gospel of John. God has sent a witness to bring knowledge of God in the person of his son, and he's done that because he loves us. And he wants us to live. He said in the Old Testament through the prophet Ezekiel, Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? He wants us to live. God sent this witness, verse 6, so that we might believe through his witness, and that by believing we might have eternal life. The witness's name was John. This is John the Baptist. And in opening up here in the prologue to the story, the idea of bearing witness to, the, to Christ, the word of God, John is setting us up for something that's going to be a major element in this gospel. And the fact that God has not left those in darkness without a witness, this is telling us something profound about our Father and about the plan for which Jesus has come into the world. Let's get a sense this morning of just how significant the idea of witness is in the Gospel of John. It's pretty noticeable. You can think of two words. You could have the noun, a witness, and you could have the verb, to bear witness, to, to, to witness or to bear witness. Uh, let's, let's see how John uses these compared to the other three Gospel writers. Okay? The noun, a witness, occurs 14 times in the Gospel of John. Now compare that to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew, the, the word, a witness, appears zero times. Mark mentions a witness three times. Luke mentions a witness once. So you have zero, th one, three, and John, you have 14 appearances of the word. The verb is even worse, or better, depending on what you want to say. The verb to bear witness shows up 33 times in John's gospel. Once in Matthew, once in Luke, zero times in Mark. One, one, zero, 33 in John's gospel. This is a point he's trying to make very clear. The witness that God has provided concerning who Jesus is. He's not left those in darkness without a witness. And the witnesses are many. This is not one person being said 33 times that, that they bore witness. Many witnesses that God provides. Uh, let me give these to you. I'll give you one uh, reference for each one, although for most of them, it, it shows up more than once. Okay? Um, and I'll, I'll follow Leon Morris. Leon Morris tries to take the, the witnesses to Jesus and John and put them into seven. He says there are seven witnesses. I think you'll see he's being a little generous with his or creative with his numbers. You'll see that when we get to number seven. But let me just quickly give you these. Who bears witness to Jesus 
in the Gospel of John. Number one, the Father does. John 5.37, and the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. Number two, Christ himself, he bears witness about himself. It happens twice in John 8, he makes this comment, which is, by the way, one of the most enjoyable arguments recorded in print anywhere. I cannot wait until we get to John chapter 8. But twice in that chapter, Jesus says that he bears witness about himself. Number three, the Holy Spirit. John 15, 26, when the, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Number four, the works of Jesus bear witness. John 5, 36, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish bear witness about me. Number five, get this, sacred scripture bears witness to Jesus, according to the Gospel of John. And speaking, you can tell, about the Old Testament scriptures. John 5.39, this is amazing. Jesus says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness <coughs> about me. Sacred scripture bears witness. Number six, John the Baptist, we've seen it here. He came as a witness. He came to bear witness about the light, verse 8. And then number seven, and here's where it's not really seven. Number seven, a variety of human witnesses, right? So the disciples bear witness, John 15, 27. Uh, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. The Samaritan woman, who is only in John's gospel, will bear witness. John 4, 39, many Samaritans believed because of the woman's testimony or witness. It's the same word. And finally, there's a multitude in John 12. John 12, 17, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb continued to bear witness. Now, you hear those, and keep in mind the lack of emphasis on witness in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John is doing something very intentional here. He is giving us an inescapable situation as we read. We're reading we think it's just us, and we're reading, and we suddenly realize that we are utterly surrounded by witnesses confirming the truth of what's being said here. And each one of them then, once you see that, you realize they, they suddenly mean a little bit more than you thought they meant when you were looking at them all by themselves. The Samaritan woman, it's a well-known story, powerful story. We know that she was bearing witness to the Samaritans in her town. But now maybe you know something that you hadn't known to see before. What she is in this story is more than just her. She is one of a rapidly growing multitude who have seen God's glory on display in the person of his son. And now she has become a witness to it herself. I remember watching uh, an episode. I'm, uh, this is on the second or the third uh, show reference this morning. I don't just watch... watch uh, movies all the time. But I remember watching a show I really liked, and there was a scene in that, in that show where there's three of the main characters in a jungle, thick jungle, and they're all armed with, with weapons, speaking to one of the enemy. So it's three on one, and the enemy is unarmed, politely advises them they should put down their weapons. And they kind of look at each other and they go, it's three on one here. And that individual makes a signal and immediately 
surrounding them, torches in the jungle come to light at the same time in a a big circle around them. And they suddenly look at that one in a very different way, don't they? That's not just one anymore. And the fact that that one is is not, doesn't seem as powerful as they uh, first thought, it doesn't matter so much anymore because it's not one. This is one representing a great multitude that has them surrounded. My friends, they're all over the place in this story. Standing among them, shoulder to shoulder, nothing short of the Old Testament scriptures themselves. Standing as a witness to this one, the God-man Jesus Christ. The disciples have been witnessed to. They have seen. And now they turn and stand shoulder to shoulder as witnesses themselves. This is what God does. He does it through the Gospel of John. He's done it all through human history. But in a particular way, in terms of, if we're thinking of a witness to the God-man Jesus Christ, the second person taken on flesh, ever since he walked the earth, God has been in the business of growing a great throng of witnesses. And if God brings you into the light, you are not the same again. You are now a witness. This is what God did in and through his Son since day one, and the first witness to bear witness was John the Baptist. Verse 7, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was the first one to point his finger and say, behold, The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. His disciples hear that and they say, I'm out of here. I found something better. And they go. And he says, by the time Jesus is done with them, he's told them, you will see. You will see some things. This is what God has been doing. Growing this throng of witnesses. And many, many times, evil men have sought to crush that voice of witness, haven't they? And as they have crushed, and as they have crushed and crushed, and the blood of martyrs has flowed, the voice of witness has done what? It has only grown. And my friend, this is what happened to you if you know the Lord Jesus Christ. When he revealed himself to you, you turned and saw. You were given eyes to see. He kindly took off the blinders that you had insisted upon all your life. And you saw. And you turned and you joined shoulder to shoulder with that crowd of witnesses testifying to the greatness and the goodness of Christ. I would have us move past this theme of witness this morning, but I'll close it out by making just one simple observation. I hope this is encouraging to you. What is it that these witnesses are all doing? They are giving voice to what they have seen. That's what they're doing. That's what witnesses do, isn't it? They give voice to what they have seen. A witness isn't someone who captained their high school speech team or their college debate team. All they do is give voice to what they have seen. And we do that through simple, but because of the nature of the testimony. 
and the object of the testimony, simple but profound public statements about who Jesus is in relation to this this world. Our words are profound witnesses. The testimony of a changed life is a profound witness. Remember, Jesus' works were one of the things that bore witness about him. It wasn't just men. It was the things that he is doing. We are the things that are being changed by him. Our lives bear witness, and our words bear witness. I hope that that's maybe an encouraging and invigorating reminder to you this morning as to what you're actually called to. Because no matter what you think, you can't do much worse than the man who was born blind in John chapter 9, who actually did a pretty great job, who will say of Christ, whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. That's pretty good. Now then, on the larger topic of the mission of the light, which is, as we've seen, to rescue those the Father has given him, think with me about this. The light did not simply engage in this mission by sending John the Baptist and enlightening him. It's not all that the light has done in this rescue mission, is it? He engaged in the mission by actually coming into the world in the flesh, didn't he? We talked at length about this last week in verse 14 when we thought about incarnation. But the last thing I would have us consider together this morning regarding this is what we find in verses 9 to 13. And it's the answer to this question. How did the light accomplish this mission? Look at verse 9. The true light was coming into the world. But what exactly is it that he did? In what way did he enlighten them that accomplished this rescue mission? That's not maybe a very clear question. Let me get at it another way. Let me read verses 9 to 11. You see it there? The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Now, what I want us to see is that there are, there's one problem articulated two ways in those verses. This will lead us to verse 12 to finish. But do you see first that the problem that's found in the world is described in two ways here. Verse 10, what's the problem in verse 10? The world did not know him. Verse 11, what's the problem? His own people did not receive him. Now, in terms of who exactly he's emphasizing there, there may be some some differences, but the problem is not different, is it? The world did not know him, and when he came, he was rejected. He was not received. Now, if that's the problem, how did Christ solve this problem? And it's really handy, given the two ways that the problem is described in 10 and 11. We could equally describe the solution then in two ways, and we find them both in verse 12. Verse 12 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You see the two solutions? Verse 11's problem. They did not receive him. They did not draw near to him. They did not enter into the relationship that he was coming with, that of of rescuer, atonement, Lord, Savior. 
they did not receive him. But when Jesus' work was done, verse 12, some did receive him. He had done something so that some saw the light coming into the world and did not run from the light, but ran to the light. Entered into relationship, fellowship with him, through which knowledge of God comes. Now there's verse 10's problem, isn't it? The world did not know him. If we understand knowledge in terms of the relationship that we saw at the beginning, these are two sides of the same coin. But we can't get around the fact that there is a lack of knowledge being described here. It's a lack that they are responsible for, but it's a lack nonetheless. God says in Hosea chapter 4, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. And Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Listen to this. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. My people perish for lack of knowledge. And the solution that Jesus wrought in the hearts of his people is that they believed in his name. There it is right there. If you know someone's name, you know truth about them. You know them. Romans 10, 14, how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? Here comes, this is what's ahead of us, right? A gospel full of Jesus' own teaching centered around the question, who is this? And here comes Jesus' statements, so many of them found only in this gospel, including his famous I am statements. Who is this? I am this. I am that. And in believing in his name, we are believing that he is all the things that he says he is. You can't separate the two. In other words, I think the Apostle John would have a problem with the statement that we can sometimes hear thrown around. And maybe, I, I don't know if I've said this or not, you can tell there's something right in this statement. It's not that everything's wrong in the statement, but I don't like the statement itself. Here it is. We are not, have you heard this before? We aren't saved by believing in propositions. We are saved by believing in a person. Again, are we saved by believing in a person? Of course we are. We're not saved by propositions. We're saved by a person. That's very important. But the problem in this statement is the dichotomy that's being set up, isn't it? It doesn't actually make any sense if you stop and think about it. You can't separate believing in a person from believing in propositions about that person. You can't do that. There's nothing left. That matters here for us because we understand already by now that this book is about presenting to us a series of truth claims about Jesus. Remember what we saw the first week. John is about to present for us a series of signs that we are meant to see, understand, and conclude Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Believe in him and have life in his name. That's what's supposed to happen. Those signs are bearing witness to the claims that Jesus makes about who he is. Those are propositions. You can't get around that. These are truth claims, in other words, that we must do something with. So John has come and borne witness about the light. 
And we find truth claims like that of verse 29 when he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. My friends, is that true or is it not true? That greatly impacts who you think he is, who you are believing. Or for that matter, we see one here in verse 12, one of these truth claims. Verse 12 claims that Jesus is the one who decides whether to grant you to be a child of God or not. And that he does so to all who believe in his name. Now that's a truth claim. Is that true? Or is it not? It matters what we believe about Jesus. We have not yet dealt with some very important statements in this prologue, especially verse 13 and verses 16 to 18. We'll deal with those statements and finish this out next week. But my friends, this morning, let's just close on this, on what we have been seeing here out of verse 12. This should elicit much thought from us and much response from us. That truth in verse 12 means that it matters very much what I think about Jesus. So what do you think about Jesus? We said it last week, it's, it's high time that that name stopped making us yawn or feel a, a bit silly to say because it makes me feel like I'm in a child's Sunday school class. It's high time that that name stopped having that, um, that effect on us. It's high time that that name It's time that that name heard made us sit up straighter in our chairs. What do you think about Jesus? What does he think about what you think about him? He who knows your every thought. Does he see you choosing to trust him in your trial because you think he's trustworthy? Does he see you choosing to obey him when it's hard because you really do care about representing him well? Does he see you running to him in your weaknesses and in your failures because you know him? And knowing him, you know that you need never, must never run from him. It matters very much what we think about Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning. And we thank you for sending your word, your son, your only begotten son, that we might see your glory and come into the light and be rescued and be forgiven and be made whole.
Father, we declare it openly to one another this morning and joyfully that it is only in your Son that we find rest and healing. We do long for the day when we will see him face to face. Until that day, Lord, we pray, guard us from darkness. Keep us in the light. And not for our sake, but so that the world might know your goodness. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the Lord has fed us with his word this morning. It is a great joy and gift, and so let me invite you to stand with me. Let's respond to that gift together in song. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. We are dismissed. Go in his peace.